Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Wow, you really picked a great restaurant for our first date. Yeah, it's molecular gastronomy, but most of the ingredients are foraged. Yeah, this martini with the pig ear in it is amazing. Well, pig ear martinis are kind of last year. But the Corona stuffed with buffalo meat and cilantro, you won't see that anywhere else. From your OkCupid okay profile, I, I wouldn't have guessed you were such a foodie. Is there anything else you want to tell me? Nothing important. I mean, I'm a socialist, but... A socialist? Uh, and you didn't tell me? Wait, did your fork touch my coconut foam and ramen? Ooh, was it in your mouth before it touched my food? Oh, God, should I make myself throw up right here? Or is there time to run to the bathroom? It doesn't spread by saliva, Kion. My name? I gave you my real name? Oh, what was I thinking? You've probably already turned it over to the slave masters and world socialist headquarters. I'm going to be implicated when you blackmail NATO with stolen nuclear weapons and red Chinese narcotics. Are you sure you're not mixing us up with Spectre? Oh, well, maybe. As a socialist, I believe in much higher taxes, but they're used to pay for free health care, universal health care, free college, and the elimination of poverty. <laughs> you must really think I'm an idiot if you expect me to believe, <laughs> believe that. No, seriously. Is that what you believe? Yes. Wow. Well, it seems like I totally misjudged socialism. This is all stuff that I can really relate to and, and, and accept if our relationship moves forward. Well, thanks for hearing me out. Is there anything more I should know about you? Well, I play the bagpipes. Check, please. Uh, wait a second. You know what? Here's my credit card. Pay the check, and I'll cancel the card in an hour. Bye bye uh, I blew it. My mom always told me never tell a man you play bagpipes until you've had hot sex with him at least once. I should have listened. On the other hand, I have his Capital One card. Waiter, another pig ear martini. My doctor says I need one of these every 15 minutes. Here's a show about socialism. And now he's a lot like Bernie Sanders, but not so happy-go-lucky. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, I feel as though Bernie needs to, you know, just drop all the joking around and take things a little bit more seriously. Uh, we do want to talk about socialism today. It's a word people throw around a lot, uh, and uh, they never really define it. Um, there is a persistent and annoying absurdity in calling Barack Obama a socialist. Capitalism has rarely had such a good friend in the White House. But socialism is a word with many meanings, and I'm sure it means something different to Francois Hollande than it did to Hugo Chavez. Certainly, if you go on vacation in uh, Europe in the summer, uh, you are going to travel to countries that either have a, a socialist leading party or a party waiting to become the socialist leading party. You're not going to be too far from a socialist model or a socialist ideology uh, if you travel around Europe. Um, so what does it actually mean? Uh, Jonathan Chait, writing in last week's New York Magazine, wrote, In fact, for a term so freighted with the capacity to inspire its supporters and terror, excuse me, terrorize everybody else, 
Socialism is oddly bereft of any specific meaning. A self-described socialist might endorse government control of industry, or equal, equal, equal incomes for all, or a maximum income above which the government taxes everything, or none of those things. So what is socialism? That's what we're going to try to explore today. Also explore the role that Bernie Sanders is playing in kind of reintroducing uh, the American public to an idea that it used to be a lot more comfortable with um, about a century ago, actually less than a century ago. Uh, to help us do that, we've got Richard D. Wolf, professor of economics emeritus at the University of um, Massachusetts at Amherst. He's the author of Capitalism Hits the Fan, the Global Economic Meltdown and What to Do About It. Uh, Elliot Ratzman, professor of religion at Temple University, Philadelphia, and a longtime member of the Democratic Socialists of America, the co-author of Secular Faith. A little bit later, you'll meet Maria Swart. She is national director of the Democratic Socialists of America. You can learn more about them at dsausa.org. Uh, and uh, towards the end of the show, you'll also, also re- meet Emidio Mimi Soltisic, uh, who is the Socialist Party USA's presidential candidate for the 2016 general election. Uh, you can learn more about that at socialistparty-usa.net. Um, and we'll try to get as much of this information that I just plowed through uh, up on our website when the show is over. But let's begin uh, at the beginning. Let's begin with uh, definitions. Uh, so, Richard Wolf, I am going to start with you. Uh, this is something that you have been known to give a 50-minute lecture about and uh, and longer. Uh, so uh, we don't have that amount. Well, we do have that amount of time, but it's all the time we have. So if you have to explain to somebody what socialism, socialism is and maybe more uh, compellingly what socialism isn't, how do you do it in a thumbnail? Well, I think the best way to start, and thank you, by the way, for inviting me to participate, uh, the best way to start is to remind everybody that capitalism, the system that is dominant in the world today, um, is not the only way human beings have organized economies. Uh, We've had slavery, we've had feudalism, we've had quite a few. And that uh, in the long history of the human race, as these economic systems have come and gone, They've always had people who love them and are grateful for them alongside people who are critical uh, of them, just like every other part of our lives, our family lives, our political lives, our cultural lives, have those who celebrate and those who criticize. Basically, socialists have been those who throughout the history of capitalism have basically looked at the system experienced it, lived in it, and come to the critical conclusion that the human race can and should do better, uh, economically speaking particularly, uh, than capitalism, that it's not the be-all and end-all, that it may have been progressive at one part of its history, but like all previous systems, um, it turns from being an engine of progress to an engine of regression, and at that point, human beings uh, begin to discuss, debate, and begin to move uh, to doing something differently. We got rid of slavery, we got rid of feudalism, and socialists are quite confident that sooner or later, and it can take a while, uh, human beings will come up with alternatives. And we've now had a good 150 to 200 years during which socialists have come up not with one that we can summarize, but really with a, with a family, you might say, of alternative and variations on the notion that we can uh, do better. 
and I think hopefully in this program you're going to get a chance to survey and discuss and compare some of the main ways that socialists have expressed both their criticisms of capitalism on the one hand and their notions of what that doing better would amount to on the other. Well, so uh, to, uh, you set it up beautifully, and let me swing it over to Elliot Ratzman. So it could be argued that, uh, Elliot Ratzman, that, that socialism, as opposed to being a very specific blueprint for uh, how people are going to relate to government, how government's going to relate to people, uh, how an economy is going to be run, that it, it is kind of, as Richard Wolff is saying, a sensibility. Um, uh, but if, it, if it's a sensibility, if it's a belief system, if it's um, uh, something which can manifest itself in different specificities, what's the bedrock of it? What, what are any two socialists going to agree about? Well, I, I like to speak of socialism as a tradition, much like you might speak of a religion, say Christianity as a tradition, having a range of attitudes, practices, uh, doctrines, uh, although most Christians would agree on a small number of core beliefs, I would say the core, some of the, the common threads of socialists, uh, both Marxist socialists and non-Marxist socialists, religious socialists and economic socialists, might be that uh, collective life in the modern period under capitalism uh, demands a critique of the way in which some are exploited by others in the realm of work, sometimes in the realm of race, and in social life more generally. That the solutions are not mere individual solutions of changings of behavior, but systemic, collective, and public forms of transformation. So um, let's get down a little bit to the specific history of all this. Um, obviously, this is a term that has been hurled uh, as both a, a, an insult uh, and a suggestion um, that we should suspect the person we hurl it at, but it was not ever thus. Uh, and Richard Wolff, we know that Eugene V. Debs, who is in fact one of Bernie Sanders' uh, heroes, uh, is uh, ran for president multiple times. I think in 1912 he got like 6% of the vote, uh, something like that. I'm sitting fewer than 60 miles from the city of Bridgeport, Connecticut, where Jasper, Jasper McLevy ran as a socialist and served as mayor of that city for 22 years, going into the 1950s. Um, but that's an anomaly. Um, at some point, it suddenly wasn't cool to be a socialist anymore. So can you talk about that specifically? What, what happened to our what changed uh, American attitudes about that word and that idea? Sure, I'd be glad to. <clears throat> And partly it's easy because it was so stark uh, a part of our history, the United States. Uh, in the first half of the 20th century, at least for most of it, uh, socialists were a very important part of American history. Eugene Victor Debs at the very beginning of the 20th century, uh, but increasingly across the 1920s, and then it really took off in the 1930s and 40s, uh, tens of thousands of Americans joined uh, socialist and communist parties. Um, millions joined labor movements that had lots of socialists in them, and so on. And it was a, uh, a time when people, partly because of the Great Depression of the 1930s, had a great deal to be critical about capitalism. I mean, the president of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt, gave a speech in the 30s that one-third of America goes to bed uh, ill-fed, ill-clothed, ill-housed, 
uh, it wasn't terribly surprising then that criticisms of capital uh, and capitalism zoomed. And a lot of those people found their way sooner or later to one or another version of uh, socialism. And then if you add that in World War II that comes right after the Great Depression, uh, roughly 1941 to 1945, that the United States was officially allied with the world's only socialist country at that time, the Soviet Union, in a war against a common enemy, German and uh, Japanese fascism and Italian fascism, then you can see that by the end of 1945, uh, socialists were uh, not only uh, tolerated, but widespread, large in number, and very widely respected as trusted allies in a world war that was crucial. Everything changes after 1945, partly because the socialists were successful in the 1930s and 40s in this country. They were major movers and shakers behind the creation of social security, behind the creation of the first minimum wage, by the creation in the 30s of the unemployment compensation system, and by the famous uh, public job system uh, of Roosevelt. And socialists took a lot of credit for helping to make those things real, and uh, part of their prestige came from that. But for those of you who know your American history, you'll know that the way in the depressed America the money was found to pay for Social Security uh, and for unemployment compensation and to pay the 15 million people that uh, the Roosevelt government hired, that was done by taxing corporations and the rich. And at the end of World War II, they didn't like this system at all. They wanted changes. And they understood, that is, the corporations and the rich in this country understood that they had to defeat the coalition that had produced all of these quasi-socialist innovations in American history. And the way to do that was to convince the American people, which they set about to do, that a communist or a socialist or a Marxist or any of those things was uh, an evil person, uh, likely directed from a foreign power that was dangerous, and you converted socialists from being a point of view, uh, from being a group in the society with a critical perspective, into being dangerous, uh, foreign, alien, and so on. And for the last half century, until really quite recently, uh, there was a kind of demonization of everything having to do with socialism that meant that even though socialists were active everywhere else in the world, as you opened the program quite correctly, talking about other countries in Europe and so on, here in the United States, we are just now emerging from this demonization that has more to do with our own economic history than with anything about socialism, really, or about the rest of the world. You know, it seems also as though, um, uh, Professor Ratzman, let me uh, switch over to you. It seems also as though the critique came from, from a couple of other places. I, you know, I'm just old enough to remember my parents uh, during the debate about the creation of Medicare 
um, calling that socialized medicine and saying that in a kind of a negative way. So circa 1966, you know, socialized medicine had um, a, a bitter taste to at least some people, maybe a lot of people. I think the term may have even been promulgated by the American Medi- Medical Association. Uh, so socialized medicine was not a good thing. And and some of it's probably coming from the forces that Richard Wolff has just de- described, but I'm wondering if it came from other places. I mean, obviously, when, in fact, in during the 1950s and, and 60s, we began to see the USSR as a threat to our existence, um, one of those S's, uh, acquired probably a slightly more radioactive tinge to it. Is there something more you can say about that? Sure. Well, the the communist countries and communist parties have a different style than white, what might be called the democratic socialist traditions. Uh, democratic socialists often were against communism, anti-communism. Uh, there were critiques of communism from explicitly out-socialist journals like Dissent Magazine. The critique of communism is different from the evocation of the S-word, socialism. There was a time after World War II where those two are conflated, and when the, the when people are speaking of socialized medicine in the 60s, I don't think they're thinking about Sweden or uh, the United Kingdoms or any other experiments with state uh, controlled or state-monitored forms of public goods. They're thinking about the Soviet Union. This is also a time when uh, communism is seen as a threat to uh, religious communities and religious organizations, but there was a long history of religious socialists, Christian socialists, uh, who lodged a critique against capitalism, thinking and asserting that capitalism made bad people. It made them competitive. It played on their worst aspects of consumption. Uh, the person who invented the phrase, what would Jesus do, WWJD, Charles Sheldon was a Christian socialist. So he believed that capitalism was, a, was a, uh, an enemy of Christian virtue. Uh, uh, there are other famous uh, religious figures as well. So the critique of socialism that you hear from the Cold War, the 50s, the 60s, and on, was really motored by a fear of communism, which is not something that Bernie Sanders or any of the democratic socialist organizers or organized socialism in Europe really looks to as a model. Certainly, communists spoke of having a socialist system, but it also was a tyrannical and bloodthirsty society. Just like Christianity is both the Amish and the Crusades, uh, there was a variety of forms of socialists who spoke of themselves as socialists. Um, Richard Wolf, I'm also wondering, I mean, okay, so the 50s and 60s were another thing. They were a time uh, of, of economic boom and plenty. Uh, Americans were, uh, most Americans were enjoying the benefits uh, of a robust economy. And the, the American association with the notion of plenty, that our system is one of plenty, uh, was reinforced by conditions during that period. Um, meanwhile, th- part of the kind of internal... Uh, intellectual code as people start would read socialism or communism uh, and yes obviously as uh, Elliot Ratzman says they would frequently conflate the two but for example there's sort of like the idea of rationing right that somehow or other uh, things would be rationed out under a socialist system and as Americans were enjoying this notion of plenty and abundance uh, in American life 
is it possible that one of the things that militated against socialism is socialism would be that notion that instead things would be rationed out? They would dribble out at a rate controlled by somebody else. There's no question that that kind of idea <clears throat> was widespread and was um, actively uh, promoted. And the Cold War was not a time of subtlety or nuance. The Cold War could be reduced to we're very good and they are very bad. Uh, we did it vis-a-vis the Soviet Union, and in their country they did it vis-a-vis us. And to go back and read what was said by otherwise intelligent men and women is to be often embarrassed by the simple-mindedness uh, that was coming uh, from people. I do think that in a fundamental way, once the demonization of socialist and communist, and I might make a point there, um, when I first started teaching in America universities, uh, my career began as a professor, I was taken aback because knowing a lot about Europe, if you go to any European country, everybody understands the difference between a communist, a socialist, an anarchist, and so on. Those organizations have been around a long time and people understand. Whereas in my classes here in the United States, uh, my students generally uh, proceeded as if the words communist, socialist, anarchist, and Marxist are synonyms, are all the same thing, they just spell it differently. Um, And that's not because Americans don't understand, it's because of that period of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, because it really didn't stop, Um, of this demonization, as if everything over there, left of the middle, is dangerous, evil, awful, uh, threatening, anti-religious, and all the rest of it. And so everybody kind of piled on. Of course, the American Medical Association, fearful of a national health insurance program in this country, by the way, the kind of national health insurance program that every other industrial country has long established, uh, would would go against it by playing on the popular notion that socialism and communism are evil. So you call whatever it is you don't like by the going name that's evil, and that was socialized medicine or socialized uh, anything else. That simply reinforces a kind of dominant uh, ideology. The, the joke about rationing that you bring up, the notion that if socialism comes, you won't get very much, That was particularly funny in this country because throughout uh, much of World War II, in a country that was 100% capitalist, namely the United States, uh, we had rationing imposed by the uh, United States government with the complete support of both the Republican and Democratic parties, I might say, uh, to impose rationing. And you'll love the argument that was given by the government back in the 1940s when we had rationing of such things as coffee and sugar and gasoline and meat and so on, the argument was we couldn't let the market decide what the prices were because that would deliver scarce goods only to the richest people. And this was immoral, by the way, immoral, and that instead we had to deliver scarce goods during the war Uh, by a system of rationing where the ration cards would be given out to Americans according to their needs rather than distributed in a market system according to who has the most money. Marx must have been grinning up in the sky 
uh, watching that process unfold. You know, I want to quickly uh, cover one thing and then we'll grab a break. I want to get Maria uh, Swart into this conversation. Uh, but before we do, um, so, uh, you know, um, uh, Elliot Ratzman, I've been sort of saying semi-jokingly that uh, if Bernie Sanders, who supposedly is going to give this foundational speech in the next few days, uh, akin to maybe what uh, JFK did about Catholicism, what Barack Obama did about being African-American, uh, rather than give that speech, what he ought to do is make widely available uh, Borgen, which is this uh, Danish TV series that's kind of the Danish equivalent of the West Wing. And you actually sort of see what one of the so-called Nordic model uh, socialist, socialist governments looks like in this kind of fascinating fictional context. But I'm always struck by when I'm watching that, that they use the term welfare state also completely non-pejoratively. It's, it's the Danish word is pretty close. It's something like velferstat. Uh, and and they, that's something they want to make work. Um, and so I'm, I know Richard Wolff is going to say in just a second, I've got the wrong countries here, uh, that I should be talking about France. But before he does that, um, you know, are, are these Scandinavian democratic socialist systems the thing we should look to and borrow from, as Bernie Sanders has suggested? Well, there are a lot of different models. Everybody has to look for, for best practices, but even those Scandinavian countries are still beholden to a larger context in which uh, a capitalist market runs the world. So they have to operate with restrictions, even within the context of their own strong welfare states. Uh, you could consider Israel, for example. Israel was started by socialists. It had socialist governments through 1977. Uh, it, it nobody went hungry in Israel uh, until recently, apparently, with its turn to the market system, to neoliberalism. There are different models and ways of people organizing themselves and thinking about what it is that they value in social and political life. What socialism has given, besides good models and good experiments, which have to be tested out, in, in real-life situations, is that socialism has given a critique of uh, overly con over-concentrations of power. Socialism has given a critique of racism. What parties were anti-racist, explicitly anti-racist, uh, before World War II? It was uh, the Communist Party and Socialist parties, uh, not other uh, uh, sectors of society. So socialism has provided a sensibility, as you said before, a critique and also a vision, a vision of a world where people do not starve, they are not uh, burdened by oppression, they are not uh, discriminated against. Socialism recognizes the power of economics uh, more so than any other factors in human life. And so the, the examples of the northern European countries or other socialist experiments either small or large. And by the way, America has its own experiments in, in out, outside of the market, uh, things such as co-ops, uh, public utilities, all these things which have a pretty good track record of distribution of, of public goods, is that the socialism has, has motored a vision of how to be a better person within the context of social life, how to be uh, think about what it means to be uh, most morally human, would be living in a society where people do not starve, go without health care, go without uh, the resources that are needed. And if we have the resources to share, we ought to be sharing them. 
All right, we're going to take, grab a quick break here. We're talking about socialism. It's going to be hard for me to take phone calls from you today. We're live here in the afternoon, if you're listening here on Wednesday afternoon. Probably be better if you tweeted at us, at WNPR Colin. My email address is Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. We'll be, more, we'll be back with more of this conversation in just a second. Smart. Just put his photo side by side with one of old Karl Marx. Notice how you never see them both in the same place. I swear they're both the same dude. It's time the truth was faced. Comes down through the chimney. That's an awful sneaky trait. Expects us all to give him free cookies on a all right, we're back. We're talking about socialism. You may tweet your remarks and your questions at us at WNPR. Colin Richard Wolf is with us, professor of economics emeritus at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, author of Capitalism Hits the Fan, The Global Economic Meltdown and What to Do About It. Uh, Maria Swart is joining us now, national director of the Democratic Socialists of America. You can learn more about them at dsausa.org. So, um, I promise that we will swing back to this whole question of European uh, socialist experiments and socialist uh, systems so that Richard can tell me that I should be talking about France and not so much about uh, the Northern European democracies. But before we do that, um, Maria Suart, I want to add you to this conversation. Um, is is socialist socialism having the moment that, that you perhaps have been waiting for for a long time right now? The, the fact that, as we were saying this morning on a different show, uh, the fact that Bernie Sanders uh, is in many polls beating all possible Republican candidates head to head uh, and has been at times the front runner uh, for the Democratic nomination in various polls. I think it would have been almost unimaginable even, I don't know, five years ago. So what happened? Oh, sorry about that. It would be helpful when I ask you this question if I put you up on the board. Um, So, Maria, what happens? So, really, I think there's a confluence of two factors. One is that people are angry. They're feeling powerless. They're struggling to make ends meet. And they know the game has been rigged by a very few at the top. And as a socialist, I would call that the capitalist class, class that's very wealthy and owns, you know, most of the productive parts of of the economy and the political system at this point. And people are very upset. That's part of their frustration at Washington um, and at corporate welfare and on all of that at Wall Street. So on the one hand, people know that the system is rigged against them. They're very angry. Uh, We've had 40 years of deregulation, union busting, privatization, budget cuts, a growing mass incarceration system, which is really a modern-day debtor's prison system, and they're sick and tired. So uh, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, there have been social movements that have risen up, and I think they've emboldened people. And then along to the scene at the national level came Bernie Sanders, someone who speaks truth to power. He points the finger at this very wealthy class of people. He points it at Wall Street. He does it without fear. And this is really helping galvanize the support of people that are extremely frustrated. And um, as Professor Wolf was talking about earlier, red baiting is an amazing tool of the capitalists to, um, you know, mobilize fear against any kinds of reforms, like even, as you said, President Obama's reforms, which are not socialist but might slightly uh, take back power from the corporations. And they call all of that socialist. And Bernie Sanders is saying, 
I'm not afraid. I'm a socialist. I'm proud, and this is what it means. Maria, let me just press you on this a little bit. Is Bernie Sanders a socialist? I mean, to me, he's a liberal Democrat. I don't see any difference between him and the late Paul Wellstone. Uh, I don't see anything about him that would really, anything that he's saying right now that's specifically socialist. To me, he's somebody who's, who's pursuing, you know, the, the far left of the Democratic agenda. But what, what for you makes him a socialist, or, or do you think he is one? Oh, I definitely think he is, even if he's focusing on the things that are more familiar to the average American, like expanding social provision, for example. Um, you know, Medicare for all, for example, or Social Security, those are moving us in the direction of socialism. They are more uh, social democratic programs. And he doesn't talk as much about expanding worker cooperatives or democratic control of investment as you know we would like. But honestly, our as Democratic Socialists of America, our immediate program is the same as Bernie Sanders' immediate program. You know, empower working people to form unions and remove the barriers. Um, you know, reverse the last 40 years of austerity budget cuts. Um, this is the kind of thing that he's talking about, and that's you know what we would love to pass right now because we believe they would be transformative. They would empower people to continue demanding more and have really more of a voice ultimately in their workplaces and in the economy. So we do believe he is, and I, I find it interesting um, to say that there are other Democratic politicians in, um, for example, Paul Wellstone. They're, they're, red baiting has been a very powerful force um, that the very wealthiest have used um, systematically for decades. And so a lot of politicians that have inclinations in this direction um, have been afraid to say it. Um, and it's been totally the idea of socialism has been exiled and our political the the range of acceptable political discourse has been dragged further and further and further to the right. Um, and what what's so great about Bernie, among other things, one of them is that he's really pulling it back and he's taking it back and he's putting it back um, into the discussion as something that's totally irrational, which, of course, it is. Um, and he's creating space for more of what you would call sort of very liberal Democrats to be able to advocate these things without fear of being red baited. So, uh, Professor Richard Wolff, um, uh, I'm starting. To, I often think that the last great socialist politician of my lifetime was Richard Nixon, who actually proposed <laughs> a health care reform far more radical and inclusive than Obamacare, and who at one point was talking about a national minimum income, um, which like, nobody from either party these days is talking about. Uh, but um, Richard Wolf, to, to your way of thinking, is Bernie Sanders a socialist? Does he does he fit the bill? Well, you know, there's no agency that I'm aware of anywhere in the world that issues certificates <laughs> indicating that you are or are not, as of today, uh, a socialist. It's more like that comedian Jeff Foxworthy who used to be do that, you might be a redneck if, yeah, you might a be a bit, socialist that's right, if. That's right. So, I mean, I, I don't, I've never found it terribly exciting or edifying uh, to get into debates uh, about what exactly the boundary is, uh, and though if you cross it, you've left the world of socialism and entered the other, etc. I'd rather be uh, kind of ecumenical, if you like, and say that if there are folks who want to call what they think of as socialist socialist, uh, I'm going to give them at least initially the benefit of the doubt, welcome them into the collective community of folks who agree that 
with that as a general orientation and then say, well, look, we will agree on many things and we will disagree on things and let's kind of get to know each other and, and, and share it. By that broad standard, absolutely, uh, Bernie Sanders is one kind of socialist. He already signals that by being very concerned, uh, as are others, to put an adjective in front of it. And you do that because you want to distinguish democratic socialism, uh, presumably from other kinds that wouldn't carry that adjective. So you can already begin to see at work uh, the notion that there are differences among folks who call themselves socialists. And those differences are important. I don't mean to, to, to denigrate them at all. But I think that that's the more interesting conversation to see how socialists disagree both with one another and with those who aren't socialists than to quarrel over whether or not you've uh, passed muster and, and deserve the name or not. And at least from my perspective, uh, I have the things I agree with with, with uh, Bernie Sanders and things I disagree with, but I have no reason or interest in disqualifying him from the label socialist. So, Maria Swart, um, let's talk a little bit about what people say back to you when you say that you're a socialist. So, personally, I, if I didn't have to learn the language, I'd move to Norway or Denmark or Sweden in a heartbeat. I mean, the weather's kind of tough, but um, but I would do it. I mean, because government delivers so many things, you know, uh, in terms of child care, uh, in terms of free college tuition, uh, in terms of um, what they consider to be unemployment. Uh, I think in Norway, you can get 62% of your salary if you lose your job for a while. Uh, all of these things seem to me to be, um, my old friend Lowell Weicker used to say that people are getting mad at government because they don't think it does anything for them. If it actually does something for them, then right. they don't hate government as much. But the, So one of the things that you've probably heard for all of your life as a socialist is, yes, but that destroys incentive. The more the government does for you, the less incentive you have to do for yourself, to create, to produce. What's your answer to that? So I have a f there are a few things that immediately come to mind, one of which is that if you just look around in our current capitalist economic system, people have a lot of different motivations to work. Um, yes, we have to work to avoid literally starvation because we have to pay rent, we have to pay for food. So that is definitely a motivator, but we have a few social programs. But the reality is people find work that they enjoy or believe in rather than it pays well all the time. If you look at teachers, you look at social workers, you look at artists and playwrights. So, you know, survival is not the only motivation that people have. People get a sense of satisfaction. Um, but, you know, another thing that motivates people is really being able to, one reason that in the United States a lot of people want to form their own companies is they want to control what they do and what you know how they invest the profits and all of that and in the capitalist capitalist system the vast majority of people work for someone else and they get paid less than the value of what they produce uh, and you know under a democratic socialist system people would actually be their own bosses and workers would own the companies that they run and people would have more of a voice in the workplace and then I think you know the final thing to keep in mind and it is pervasive in American culture is that we are taught by all the institutions that humans are naturally lazy um, and we only work because we have to, or we are taught that some humans are like this. And this has really deep roots that go back even before slavery, but it's really intertwined with the construction of the idea of whiteness in opposition to non-whiteness or specifically blackness. Um, and it's the idea that slaves only worked because they were forced to, and that idea has been used throughout American history 
to divide poor and working class people against themselves. So you see today, especially in the last 40 years, as the right has used the idea of the lazy black welfare queen to justify drastic cuts to food stamps, uh, welfare reform, and that wasn't even the Republicans, and other programs which literally throw millions of people into deep poverty and millions of children. So in a capitalist economy where not enough jobs are being created, you need to find a way to deal with all of these people. So you put some in prison and you blame the rest for their own laziness, for their own poverty, and you turn half of the population against the rest and say the reason you are living on the brink is that those people want to take something from you, and that distracts from who is really benefiting, who's making a way like bandits with the present system. I, I don't want to interrupt you, but I've got to get to a break here pretty quickly, and there's one last thing I kind of promised uh, the world and Richard Wolf that I would ask. So, Richard, uh, right now, uh, obviously, everybody uh, is very much in sympathy with France. People are putting red, white, and blue filters on their Facebook pictures and listening to accordion music. Uh, and... Um, uh, maybe not thinking too much about who Francois Hollande, uh, Hollande is and, and, and what the current French form of government um, is. Um, what would you want them to know about how socialism works or operates in France? Well, I'd want them to understand that the country that probably more Americans visit than any other when they travel abroad and want to see beautiful uh, chateaus and drink lovely wine and all the rest, that the government of France today... <clears throat> starting with the president, Francois Hollande. Uh, he's a socialist, Mr. Hollande. His party is not only the party that controls the presidency, they have the majority in the French Senate, and they have the majority in the French National Assembly, which is like our House of Representatives. In other words, you could not find a more completely socialist government in all of Europe than the one you find right now in France. They don't function in a coalition with other parties, they rule alone, and the French people voted them in massively in the last national elections uh, for those offices. So it is surprising always to me that Americans tend to live a lot in a bubble, a bubble of misinformation that I don't think is inadequate. If I can quickly add something about the incentive question you raised, mm -hmm. if you measure the degree of incentive by the broad measure of the rate of economic growth that, a, that an economy uh, enjoys, then you have to contend with the following fact. Over the last 20 years, the country in the world that has grown the fastest year in and year out is the People's Republic of China, which is, in most people's catalogs, a socialist or communist or whatever word they find uh, convenient to use. Whatever their system has done, extinguishing the incentives of people to work hard clearly isn't among them. And if you add that the largest debtor country is the United States, we owe more money than any other country, and if you put that together with the fact that the largest creditor country of the United States is, again, the People's uh, Republic of China, you do at least have to raise the question of whether the notion that you are incentivizing or in debt versus growing and a creditor, uh, the notion that those go neatly with pro and con capitalism and socialism really doesn't fit any fact of which I'm aware. Okay, we're going to grab a quick break here. We'll be back with our final segment. Uh, you'll meet a different socialist candidate for president after this. Marcus Garvey 
socialist. Sister Nanny was a socialist. Brother Papali was a socialist. But I know a few don't belong. If we accept socialists, what's next? Fascists? Anarchists? Podiatrists? Where does it end? Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are comrades Nate Gagnon and Zach LaSala. The part of Bill Curry was played by Eugene V. Debs. For show pages, articles, and photos of the here and now staff destroying our capitalist ideas, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, Ask a Muslim. And now, back to Colin. All right. We've been talking about socialism to, uh, I should say about tomorrow's show. Obviously, there's just this wave of new anti-Muslim sentiment. Uh, it's completely, for the most part, insane. Uh, so we are, we are going to, I feel like we shouldn't have to do this every five years, but we are going to, uh, once again, dispel various false assumptions about Muslims. Uh, and, well, yeah, you, you get the drill. Anyway, um, right now we are talking about socialism uh, to Richard Wolff, uh, to Elliot Ratzman, who actually has departed us, but who was great. Uh, I'm Maria Swart. Uh, and joining us now uh, is Emilio Mimi Soltisic, who is the Socialist Party USA's presidential candidate for the 2016 uh, general election. Before I bring Mimi aboard, let me just say this, that uh, obviously uh, our time is short. And as if you want to continue the conversation, uh, you can keep tweeting at WNPR Colin or send me an email at Colin at WNPR dot org. You can tell me what I forgot to ask about uh, or which follow up question I missed or whatever. Uh, but let's uh, go to Mimi. Uh, first of all, welcome to the conversation. Thank you for having me, Colin. So uh, let's say we're in an elevator and you've got 90 seconds before I get to my floor. And you mentioned as we board that you're running for president uh, with the Socialist Party USA. And I say, why in the world should I vote for you? Uh, so you've got until we hit the 20th floor. That takes 90 seconds. Give it to me. I would tell you that um, uh, the day that you vote um, is not what's most important to me or this campaign. It's what happens uh, through the, um, the, the campaign. It's what happens after the campaign. The message of the campaign isn't election day. Uh, for us, this isn't about ballot access. This isn't about the total number of votes. This is about what happens on the local level, the community level. So we use this opportunity uh, to help connect folks who are interested in the ideas uh, to working movements on the ground, to organizing opportunities on the ground. Um, you know, we believe that the kind of revolutionary change uh, that we advocate, it doesn't happen at the top. It can't be imposed from the top. It has to happen uh, with the people. It has to be led by the people. So, you know, we're a revolutionary socialist organization. We fully acknowledge that media opportunities, especially mass media opportunities, are few and far between. So during a presidential election cycle, you know, we're going to take advantage of those media opportunities, and especially with the introduction of Bernie Sanders into this campaign, there's enhanced media opportunities. We're going to use that platform to shift the focus back onto the people. Um, you know, I think there's nothing more threatening to uh, the capitalist than the unity of people. You know, when people work together, um, incredible things happen. So I would tell anyone who's interested Let's have this dialogue about what socialism means. If you're interested, how can we plug you in or help plug you into uh, uh, local work, organizing right. work? So the elevator is already at the 20th floor. I'm holding the door open and I'm saying, 
Well, Mimi, dude, like I already pay too many taxes. Um, socialists are going to want uh, more of my money to fund public programs. Uh, uh, how can I even fathom voting for something like this? So I'm holding the elevator door. Talk to me. Sure. Well, I think this is a question of priorities. Uh, you know, we're spending so much money, an incredible amount of money on the military. Let's redirect those funds to what we see to be fundamental rights for people, uh, socialized medicine, universal education, those sorts of things. So the money is there. Uh, this is a question of priorities. Where do we put that money? Are you comfortable with knowing that your money is responsible for the murder of children worldwide? Wouldn't you rather see that money directed to basic services that uh, provide for the people? Good point. Uh, why don't I just vote for Bernie? Why, should, what, what's, why isn't Bernie uh, good enough? Uh, because we don't need a reform of capitalism. Capitalism is inherently racist, oppressive, sexist, homophobic. So if we're going to reform capitalism, it's almost as if we're saying we're comfortable with uh, sort of a kinder, gentler oppression, kinder, gentler uh, imperialism, uh, racism. Thus, kinder, gentler uh, oppression, that, that's not good enough. And I think that when people work together on the community level, uh, what sounds sort of utopian or sort of an abstraction, it becomes very possible. So I would say to you, being somebody who cares about uh, uh, peace, um, that it's worth putting your effort into those community projects that are going to see those kinds of uh, uh, changes that deliver on that peace. So I think it's time for us all, you know, let's get some, uh, let's, let's hustle. So I, I literally only have 30 seconds, so go fast on this one. Um, I probably would say to you, you know, it's probably easier for me to move to Norway and learn the language than wait for the kind of change you're talking about. Okay, you got 30. Well, the truth is most of the people, most of the oppressed communities, they can't afford to more move to Norway. They need, let's care about them. Let's be serious about the care for our oppressed communities. They can't afford to do that sort of thing. That's the kind of thing that folks who have a lot of privilege can afford to do. So, you know, let's stand in solidarity with our sisters and brothers, uh, both within the U.S. and throughout the world, and be serious about peace. All right. Mimi Soltisic. First of all, well, it's socialistparty-usa.net if you want to learn more. Thanks for doing this with us today. Thanks to everybody else. Richard Wolf, Elliot Ratzman, and Maria Swart. Thanks to uh, Josh Nalea. He's the guy who pulled this whole, sh whole show together for us. We'll be back tomorrow. These pancakes are so socialist. Kion, what makes the pancakes socialist? Under this system, I have no incentive to write a punchline.